good morning, everyone. Thank you very much for getting up early on a Sunday morning to join us here. Um, today, we are, our session is entitled From Ink to Blink, as you've seen in the program, and our focus is really going to be uh, a little bit on the business of publishing, new areas of focus, and channels for reaching audiences. Um, to join the discussion, I'd like to welcome Jennifer. Jennifer Kronovet, a New Yorker, uh, an award-winning author of two poetry collections, a translator, writer, and editor at um, the newly founded Circumference Books and long-time running Circumference magazine. Um, also, Kanan Sundram, author, editor, and publisher. Okay, Kanan, how do I pronounce the company? Carla Chwede. Carla Chwede, publications, which champions uh, Tamil language and literature. And Jeffrey Yang, poet, writer, translator, and editor at New Directions Publishing and New York Review Books. Welcome. Thank you for joining us. Um, so Jennifer, if I could start with you. I come from a media background where print is most definitely dying. Um, and yet, um, I read with enthusiasm that um, independent presses like yours are, are popping up and flourishing uh, from coast to coast in the States. Uh, but I was wondering, when you started the company, uh, Circumference Books, was it that you'd done studies to look at the market that wanted not just poetry, but poetry in translation, which is your niche? Or is it that you think, you know, when I put it out there, people will definitely welcome it? So what was your approach? If I had done studies, I probably would not have started. <laughs> Dan and I would not have started the press. Um, if anything, what we researched was more like models of other small independent presses and how they formed themselves. But um, I think we, we, with a small press like Circumference Books, it's low risk in some ways. And we wanted to figure out a way to publish books that was enjoyable for us, that was had a sense of discovery for us and allowed us to discover new ways to, to bring poetry and from around the world to people and to design in translation and to program ebooks in digital versions in translation. And like how, how could we combine a project that would bring us like more knowledge and insight into publishing, but also get books to people. And I think, you know, from work, I used to work at the Academy of American Poets and the Poetry Society of America, who the goal is these or, of these organizations is to get more Americans interested in poetry. But I think that people want to like poetry in the US. And um, part of the job of marketing these books is to like just give people permission to like them in some way and give them a story that will connect people to books that they will probably, or I don't think you can force people to like poetry if they you can't force someone to like something they're not gonna like, but giving them an opportunity to like them, like, like it, and I think that's what a lot of independent presses in the US are doing, is giving people an opportunity to like things that they will like. Absolutely. Um, so Kanan, at Kalachavedu, um, you've published over 900 titles. Uh, you work with acclaimed writers like um, Perumal Murugan, whom met yesterday at the festival, and he's here with you. Um, and, but ultimately, for someone and a, and a publication house that champions Tamil writing and translations into Tamil, you're working in a country where uh, 
most books that are read are either in English or in Hindi or in you know, regional translations. So this labor of love, was it an homage to your father who started up the company originally, uh, himself an acclaimed poet and novelist, or something you, you passionately believe in and, and feel you know, there is value in, in doing? Yeah, so yeah, uh, so it's like um, uh, I come from a, a, a family of my grandfather was a well-known fiction writer. So I decided not to write fiction. That was my way of saving the family name. So, and not to do that. So, and he started the magazine, but he, he just did eight numbers and then he thought this is coming in the way of his creative work and so he stopped. Uh, so there is no direct connection between uh, the thing he launched and then what I did later. And my passion for initially was very much in media. I wanted to do a magazine. I do a magazine, a monthly magazine of politics and culture now. It's the same name, Kala Choda. So I, I started, restarted magazine as a quarterly in 1994. There was no clear plan to start a publishing house. And I did not mean this to be a, my full-time profession. Actually, my family has a textile shop. So that's what I was doing to make money. And then I started this magazine, and then due to circumstances, uh, we decided to publish, begin by publishing my father's works. But you know, it's, it's a time India was getting liberalized, and the advent of these technologies, like DTP, uh, desktop publishing, um, my town got connected online uh, through internet, and you know, the big class was making a um, lot of money, there was more education around, all these factors, unplanned factors, played into this, and uh, we got much more reception than we anticipated. I planned only to be a part-time doing this. But then, within five, six years, uh, I had to do this full-time. And then get out of all my other things I do. And this became our full-time thing because of the very good reception we received publishing um, literary fiction and non-fiction. Just in Tamil Nadu? Yeah. Tamil Nadu writers. Yes, only I publish uh, in Tamil, but I, uh, we continue to publish Tamil writers from all over the world. Right. And in that space of time now, what would you say forms the bulk of revenue for you? Is it literary fiction new writers? Is it your back library? How does, how does it divide up? Yeah, so uh, this is very interesting. Uh, in Tamil um, writing, I, we see a lot of response. Uh, I do. I go to Frankfurt every year, so I have some comparisons in mind for modern classics, uh, novels and things that were written 40, 50, 30 years ago. We do a series called Modern Tamil Classics, Modern Indian Classics, Modern World Classics. So, and so that that series receives a lot of response. I think that's mainly because um, during the time they were printed. They were not printed very well, not distributed very well, and the writers were not known very well. They were operating in a very, you can't hear me? Sorry. Hello, can you hear me? Um, yeah, sorry. So, should I repeat what I said? <laughs> so, yeah, so, and now, now when we come with good quality production books and we distribute them well, we see that uh, readers really like to go back and read whatever they have missed earlier. 
And so every year that our modern classics list sells more than our contemporary writers list. I think this is something very unique for them. But also um, books in translation across the board are you know, definitely on the rise. And I was just reading actually in the UK, uh, Chinese current um, fiction writers, sci-fi and martial arts writers are overtaking um, the Nordic thriller writers in translation. Uh, sales-wise. What are you seeing? Um, because, Jeffrey, you've been in publishing now for about 20 years, although we've just had a discussion that you come from Michael Jackson's oxygen tank and look about 22. Uh, but what are the trends you're seeing in, in America? Um, so, I'm kind of, I work in an independent publishing house, uh, New Directions, um, that's been around since like the 1930s, starting out publishing a lot of the modernists, um, American modernists and, and international modernists. So, it, so we, we have a very particular um, kind of vision of what we want to do. And so for me, having start, starting to work there um, in the fall of 2000, there was a long history already of this kind of book publishing. And so we, it was just a matter of kind of following that original vision that James Laughlin, who the founder, had started. Um, and we were fortunate because um, it was our backlist for a long time that was always supporting the front list, the front list being the new books that we're publishing and the backlist, you know, like um, the Ezra Pound and the Hilda Doolittle and the Neruda and the Lorca, all of those books, the Tennessee Williams um, was, was always supporting more of the front list so that we could do more new poetry and new fiction and in translation, which, um, which is slow to start to kind of find an audience. Um, and so, but maybe in the past 15, uh, 10, 10 years even, um, it's kind of shifted a little bit where now it's more of the front list that is actually supporting, give, selling a lot more which is actually encouraging a lot because it means um, that, I mean, I guess we're doing something right with, with, with the books and trying to get them out there uh, as well. But then also it's the audience as well is, you know, it's, I think it's, there's always going to be a niche audience for poetry, for literature and translation. And I think it's very solid right now and to a certain degree. I mean, we're never going to be an enormous, um, Kind of flush with Harry Potter money, <laughs> you know. You know, but but we're 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 able to keep going, and and so I don't know if that kind of answers that part of the question, but that's the kind of world that that I'm working. Yeah. Sure, but when I look at both uh, websites, um, there is a definite focus on China uh, in oh, recent years. Right. You know, at, yeah. at New York Review Books, oh, right. uh, yes. you've got Calligraphs, which yep. is edited by Elliot. Uh, whom we're, I'm sure we're all going to see at 11 o'clock. Um, so that is something, obviously, that's fairly new, would you say? So that um, series that Christine talked about, so I, for the past maybe five years, I've also been um, editing a few books at New York Review um, Books, which is a totally different publishing house than New Directions. And it just happened that the opportunity came up um, to do that. And so. Um, and so the series she's talking about, Calligrams, that um, Elliot um, edits, and then I, I'm kind of like the point person in the office to help him with those books. 
are um, publishing books on or about China. And I think uh, the way that started um, really was because it's a collaboration with um, Chinese University Press. And so we've, um, I've known the person who, who runs that press for a long time, and she had this idea because they have a long backlist of books. So originally, it was, it, it, she was pitching the idea as a co-publication where we would distribute the books, and they would kind of like do a lot of the production and, 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 and um, even some of the editing and things. And, and, um, and try and reinvent their backlist. But it actually came, became more of a, not just reinventing their backlist, but doing um, books that either uh, went out of print in the US that were really great translations of poetry, classical poetry, or you know, um, Francois Chung's um, book about um, Chinese poetry, or finding a new translation um, but, uh, and so it was kind of a mix, and um, yeah, so that's kind of how that started. That's a very particular thing. It wasn't like we were, we were saying, like, oh, China is now. It just happened to be Chinese University Press had some funding, presented us this thing. We thought, oh, yeah, maybe we could do this, yeah. Very organic, similar to, to your business model. Um, and translation itself is an art. As you both know, you've both worked on translations. Um, and it's now being recognized as such. I think you know there are actual awards now for literature in translation, which is, which is great. Um, and Jennifer, you've spoken a lot about the challenges involved in translating poetry, especially. Uh, just recently, your uh, conference books worked with Pauline Fun and um, Kule Grassi to translate the first collection of Iban and poems into English. What are some of the inherent challenges that you have found as a translator and as an editor and publisher? Um, I think that the challenges are always secondary to the pleasures because um, I think translating poetry, I mean, I've never translated fiction, so I don't know, is an art. And that's what makes it fun. And that that's... It comes ready-made with collaboration and exchange, and I think that's that's the focus of circumference books for sure. Is really focusing on speaking across borders and how that can become art as opposed to always a political political debate and what can be made out of it. And when we started the magazine, Circumference Magazine, the journal, in 2002, Dan and me and a poet, Stefania Heim, we really started it because we wanted to read what other poets around the world were writing. And it was really hard to find in the US. And what we found is that the people who were interested in translating this work were other poets. And I think the... When I first started translating, I started translating from Yiddish, and I was so nervous about my Yiddish because it was really terrible. And I took a translation workshop, and the teacher said, you should worry about your English. And I think that that's the challenge, um, is bringing it into an English poetic context that has an impact on English readers. Um, and I think that's why with Circumference Books, we're, what the who we work with really is the translator. And that's the, the artist that we're dealing with. And it's their English that is the art that 
draws us to the work, and then of course the original. But there's this, I don't know if you feel this way, but there's this like kind of weird magical thing that happens when you're editing a lot of translations where you can tell if the original poet is good but the translation is bad, and you can also tell if the translation is good but the poet is bad. And it's like, a, I, I can never describe why. And Stefania, when we were doing the journal, we always knew. We're like, this is clearly a good poet and a terrible translation. Um, and so when you're doing, doing the press, obviously, both have to be amazing. And you can, and like also married to each other in this way. And also, as with marriages, there's tension in that relationship, yeah. isn't there? Yesterday, I was talking to um, Charlotte Vandenbroek. And when her one of her collections was translated, uh, so her collection was all about uh, emergent sexuality, you know, transition from uh, childhood to adulthood, young adulthood, and her translator was male, and he changed huge tracts, and she was really, really upset until she realized exactly what you were saying. You know, there is an art to it. Uh, it worked in English. <laughs> Yes, it was different, but it worked very well in English, and he was very good at what he did. Did you have any experiences like that, where that relationship really needed to be nurtured for uh, artist, poet, to, to feel less violated, if that's the right word? Um, I mean, I, I see it more in my relationship with the first poet who I co-translated, Celia Dropkin. I mean, I feel like I grew up with her, and I had this sort of antagonistic relationship with her when I started translate. Like I wanted it to be more like me, and then I became more like the work. And I think sometimes those kind of projects just take so much time that you grow into them. Um, but I mean, I can't imagine what the, like this is our first book, what these poems would look like if Erin Murray hadn't translated them. I mean, she's so, it's just a perfect match. So it's hard to imagine a different kind of relationship. I mean, I think you could see it sort of when you're, I love everyone, I think everyone who translates loves comparing other people's different translations of one poem, but it's hard, it'd be hard pressed to say like, always this one is better, you know. And Jeffrey, your experience as translator, you've translated lots of work from Chinese into English, um, Uyghur into <laughs> English, Uyghur and Arabic, right? He, he wrote that was a co-translation, okay. but I, I could talk right. about that. <laughs> no, no, but I, I'm particularly interested in your experience with Yu Jiabao, the uh, Nobel Prize winning activist. Um, so that was not a co-translation. You right. never got to speak to him, uh, but you did say you spoke to his friends. So yeah. that must itself have brought challenges, you know, not being able to, yeah. to check yeah. or ask or have a chat. Tell us about that. So that is the book, um, Liu Xiaobo's um, June 4th Elegies, and Nian Nian Liu Si. And so that, um, yeah, so that was, a, that was an unusual um, project. It, um, it had been published in Hong Kong, kind of um, just kind of under the radar, you know. Uh, and so the, he, for 20 years, he wrote a poem every year commemorating Tiananmen. And, um, you know, Liu Xiaobo, as I don't know how much you know about him, but he was um, started out as a um, more of like a critical 
theorist and um, writer, and, um, but wrote a lot of poetry as well, and, um, as, and an activist. And so he had been in and out of prison, and at the time I started to translate, he was already in, in, in serving another sentence. Um, and so that book, um, I think it was one of his friends passed me a copy of that book. I'm trying to remember now exactly like the order of, of how that, and it was very unusual because it, um, it had the poems and it was interlaced with um, some images by his wife, Liu Xia, who is an artist, and there were some photographs and it was just the whole book was very unusual and, and it fit like as a, as a kind of perfect little book and object of, of what it was wanting to do, which was um, kind of memorialize and mourn and not forget. And so that was kind of what he was doing. And so I thought, oh yeah, I, could, I think I could translate this. Um, I don't know. Um, and so I started to, uh, most of what I had been translating up until then was actually classical poetry, which is what I started to do in graduate school um, in a class. And, it helped me understand the poems more, and, and that's kind of how I started that. Um, and as you know, the, the modern language is much different than the classical language. Um, the simplified characters versus the complex characters and many different things. Xi Chuan talked a little bit about that yesterday, you know, you know the syllable changes and things. And so, um, so anyway, so I, I translated um, each poem, you know, and um, talked a little bit with uh, a couple of his friends in Hong Kong about the project and, and the book, and um, was never able to speak to him, but, but I think it was, you know, it, it was okay, everything was there in the poem, and, and then he couldn't tell me I was wrong. <laughs> no, but, and then again, so. I'm sure he wouldn't have said that. Um, Kanan, you were nodding earlier when, when Jennifer was talking about you know a good translation when you see it. Um, a good translation when you see it, yeah. Um, but your problems aren't so much with translations and finding translators. It seems to be more um, with freedom of expression and the court of public opinion. Sort of listening to um, Paramal yesterday, it m mirrors a lot of what we experience here in Malaysia. You have a small team, and it must take tremendous resources to support writers who, you know, have, are being vilified in the in the media, uh, have to go to court. How has that experience been for you with your writers? So, uh, before I come into the topic, can I say a few things about Chinese because I'm kind of feeling left out here? So, we have <laughs> we have published uh, three books in relation to Chinese, which I just want to mention here. The first book I think is how to learn Chinese through Tamil. We could publish that about 15 years ago. And then a selection of uh, classical Chinese poetry directly translated from Chinese to Tamil. And then Moyan's Change, again, a direct translation from Chinese. I think I, why I want to mention this is because Tamil and Chinese in that region are two classical languages with thousands of years of literature. But there has been no direct translation ever before, not in Malaysia, not in Singapore. But uh, I'm happy that you know, we could do that, uh, working with the translator. So coming to your question. Actually, can you first say how, how many people, or what's your staff, like how many people work? Right now? So, okay. so now we do everything in-house, from marketing to 
you know, typing the manuscript if necessary or scanning the copies, whatever. Uh, so we have on the whole a team of 25 people working. Uh, Can you just tell everybody how long your journey to your office takes every day? So my office is part of my home. <laughs> now, before it was just next room. <laughs> yeah, and I also take a nap every afternoon. So I just want to make them feel very jealous. <laughs> so, um, see, when uh, we started in 1995, I should say that um, there have not, not been many times we have uh, felt threatened uh, by the state in all these years. It has happened only twice uh, in all these years. And uh, we sort of, from the beginning, we had a very clear position on freedom of expression of writers, that we would honor that and we would stand by the writers. So there was no silly attempts to you know, twist our arms that sense that people know that a phone call won't do it. But at some point, because of a magazine, it's also a political magazine, we sort of upset the local state government and they tried to mess around a bit, but then we had to go to court and sort of solve that problem once. But uh, otherwise, uh, from the community itself, not from the state, from the community itself, there is a lot of resistance because of the lack of understanding on how to approach modern literature and because they really do not know the richness of the ancient Tamil literature. Thank you. Uh, yeah, ancient Tamil literature, they don't know how to really appreciate the literary value of that. And because in the later years, probably because of the colonial impact and other things, the middle class, they want to, they want to enforce a kind of morality and ethics and values through literature and that's what I, they think literature is all about. And they don't want literature to reflect life itself. They are not ready for that. And very sensitive about what appears in print as opposed to, there is, there is very little controversy about what happens in movies actually, for example. But when it comes in print, they become very sensitive about print is kind of sort of the record, you know. So that, that upsets people a lot. So we have, we have had difficulty with the publishing women writers earlier on. And there is a documentary about that called She Write. About Sorry, four, could you repeat she that? Write. She Write, okay. About four women poets who were attacked, threatened because for no reason political, just that they, they decided to write about their desires, their body, their sexuality. And that was against the, the modesty of Tamil women and Tamil culture. So that became a problem. So like that, we have faced smaller issues all along our journey. Mm. So that is not a new thing for us. What happened with Paramount Morgan issue was that it became an international issue. And the forces against were, were really seriously dangerous. That was our first real serious threat we received, in the sense that we know that they will go to any extent to, it is, it is, they were not messing around. They would do anything possible to, that was necessary to achieve their aim. So that was a very serious uh, threat to freedom of expression. Thankfully, we did get a lot of support from the community, from the media, and the court gave a brilliant decision. And what has happened as a result of that is that the right-wing group that was uh, on the ground realized that 
probably attacking books is not a very good idea. It's very counterproductive and sort of brings in a lot of unwanted attention from around the world and it's really not worth it. So at least now strategically or whatever reason, uh, they have sort of stopped attacking books and writers mm. to an extent. So unfortunate as it was, it perhaps has served, served you well. Um, so focusing now a little bit more on reaching audiences. So you were, you were saying earlier, Jennifer, about you know, if you put it out there uh, and people see it, um, they like it. You know, they didn't know they liked it, but they like it. Um, so now we are, we are, well, I don't know about you, but I'm certainly uh, addicted to my smartphone. Um, access, it's all about access and, uh, you know, anytime, anywhere. Um, and lots of younger, younger readers, um, I, I think I read somewhere, uh, the Statistics Department and uh, the National Endowment for the Arts in the US uh, carried out a survey. And the number of readers in the 18 to 24 age group who are reading poetry has doubled in a five-year period from 2012 to 2017, which is fantastic. Um, do you think it's because we have shorter attention spans? Poetry is the salve to Twitter and, you know, the, the, the angst and the anger and the, the bile that, it, that is out there. Um, and do you think that social media can also offer a way of reaching new audiences for smaller, more serious, uh, highbrow, uh, independent presses like yours? Um, I definitely, I mean, I just remember in 2003 when we were doing the magazine like trying to tell people about events and I think we had to like send in notices to actual print magazines and then if they didn't run it then you had to like call all your friends so just I think it's easy to forget like the ease now we have in reaching so many people and letting them know about a book I mean it's just just through Facebook and Twitter and, um, and I think for us and Dan has really been doing the most of this is like having new content on our website that contextualizes the books and gives access to the books um, in a way that is also like beautiful and a pleasure because I think so you know a lot of social media it's hard to imagine a bilingual quality to it and our project is really based in, in having at least two languages available to see and having the fact that this is translated and that this is a conversation visually there. So, Dan, do you want to talk about the... No. Yes. <laughs> about designing... Um, hi, I'm Dan. I'm the other half of the circumference right now. Um, and I, I started as a book designer, and I'm kind of a, a publishing technologist, I guess. Um, I, think, I think one thing about publishing is it's like it's always, to a certain extent, been about technology, about kind of moving kind of ideas through words, through paper, to people. And I think the electronic world kind of works the same way. You're kind of moving ideas through words to people. Um, and I think there's often like this kind of adversarial relationship between print and the screen. And I don't think I, think, I think you have to think of the screen as kind of a tool that you can use and you can do good things if you're thinking about what you're trying to do with it. 
Um, and I think like one of the things that has come up with us is like kind of most like electronic reading is terrible. Um, it's just like it's not designed for a reading experience. It's not thinking about the reader. It's just kind of the cheapest possible way to kind of get things out there. It's, it's essentially commercial. Um, but it doesn't have to be that way. I mean, it's, it's just like as, like as a designer, you can kind of think of ways. Like, I don't know, like, we're, so like we're focusing on translation. And like there are a lot of really great ways that you can kind of put like bilingual texts online if you try a little bit. And, <laughs> and I think one thing is just like no one's bothered to try. I mean, like Amazon doesn't care. I mean, Amazon's making money hand over fist, so they have no incentive at all to do that sort of thing. Apple doesn't care. Like that's not, that's not in their wheelhouse. And I think that's something that small publishers can do. Like we can, we can do that sort of thing. Um, but like at the same time, it's, it's I don't know, like it's, like it's making a book is kind of about as hard as like making a website or making an app. And as a publisher, I mean, you can think about. I mean, like for example, like I think one thing, like with our current book, which is um, Kulagrasi's first publication in Malay as well as in English, like we suddenly have like a very large appetite for our book in Malay, in, in Malaysia, um, and presumably Indonesia and Singapore as well. Um, and like we're a tiny publisher, and all our books are mostly in New York, and kind of getting boxes of books kind of across borders is weirdly complicated because <laughs> governments want a lot of taxes. Um, and they're like, there are just two of us doing it. We don't have an office in Malaysia. Like, that's really complicated. Um, but, I mean, like, the other way to look at that is, like, it's not that hard to, like, kind of, I mean, everyone in Borneo has, like, an Android smartphone. And we can make an app without that much trouble. Like, we've already kind of digitized the book. And so we can, we can get the book to people that way. And so I think just thinking about technology, like, as a tool to be used by the publisher for what you want to do is, I think, our attitude. Thank you. Um have you found a similar problem getting books across borders? So when you are selling your books to the Tamil reading diaspora across, you know, I would imagine a lot of us in Malaysia, in Singapore, uh, and other, you know, Canada, are huge, you know, parts of other parts of the world. How have you found that? So um, we 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 actually don't send uh, send book directly to Singapore, Malaysia, uh, Sri Lanka, or Toronto and Paris where there are London, where there are huge populations. But uh, the local bookshops, uh, if and when they are there, they would, they would have an exporter in Chennai who would come and take the books from us. And then we actually wouldn't even know where they're going to send those books. They buy from us, but uh, then we see our books uh, being sold in many places. But we can't really, well, same exporter might be supplying to different countries and they won't be willing to share with us exactly where they're going to sell those books. But uh, wherever books are required, there's not much difficulty. Either they can come to Chennai, do the Chennai Book Fair and contact us, or they do that through exporters. And, and back to social media, do you have anyone on the team who's looking at marketing or reaching perhaps new markets via social media, or is that way down on your list? At, it's not way down my list. I think we should have somebody. It's just that we can't right now afford to have somebody. So we have somebody who's doing it part-time. Not much. Just doing some postings on uh, Facebook. Uh, not even there on Twitter yet. But I think we have to see this look at having at least one person doing uh, that marketing because it does have an impact and it is very important. 
And what's your experience been, Jeffrey? Yeah, um, so when I first started New Directions, our website was maybe like one page of, <laughs> and it looked really, it wasn't, I mean, it's, it's hard to imagine the transition that, I mean, when I first started working there, we were still using typewriters to, for certain letters and for, you know, for, um, for filling out checks and, you know. But New Directions is a particular type of company, right? I mean, no. you have a set of rules and regulations that you all follow. I just mean the, the, the technology wasn't even, you know, it was, everyone was trying to, to catch up. And, and there was a moment when, when no one really knew what the, you know, of course, where it was go, e-books and things, where it could have gone in a much different kind of direction of how, of how things were, were done. But so, um, so, no, of course, we've had to, um, I mean, I guess the word would be modernize, <laughs> which is kind of weird to say. But um, um, so we, you know, really knew we had to establish a stronger web presence. Um, we, our website has gone through a few different iterations since then. Um, we're, you know, we have people in the office who do all the, you know, all the social media that we can do through the various channels to get the books out there. We, we always um, tried to make ebooks available. Actually, always, we, we have ebooks. It's, it's, it's all of our contracts have electronic rights. It's kind of, you know, it's all kind of caught up to what, what the various outlets are to, to read something. But for us, I mean, it's still about the book. Um, it's about the actual book where you could write in the book and, you know, have the book. And, and so we want to make it not, uh, a good book. We don't want it to, you know, it's not a mass market paperback meant to fall apart so that you have to, you know, buy another one. So, you know, we try and have that quality of design, which has been there from the very beginning of the press, and also the quality of the book. Um, and, you know, so, and, and luckily I'm not, like, uh, too alone about that because we have an audience for these books as well who are buying them and then giving people the option to 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 buy an ebook if they want and which is which is fine and, and, yeah. and yeah so yeah yes absolutely um, I think it's interesting to look right now at um, American poetry like contemporary American poetry I'd be hard-pressed to think of a book that's not a series that's not that doesn't read as a book from beginning to end I mean, I think that's definitely the trend. The trend in contemporary poetry in the U.S. right now is a book is a book of poetry, whereas before it could be a collection of, and I think in other countries it's still a collection of poems that have been written in the past few years. But the books are very thematic now and very from front to back. And that's true of our first book for sure. And then also the way that this book is organized is very thematic and intentionally. And I will wonder sometimes if that's a reaction to wanting something that's not something you could read one poem here, read one poem online. It's more of, of an immersive experience that you can only find in a book, be it digital or print, that you can't find online. And I think people, that's what people want to, are writing and that's what people want to read right now. So as people are, their entry might be one poem that they find in a journal or online, but then it's part of a larger whole. And I think you feel that now when you read a poem online, you feel this is part of something bigger and that's what brings you to the book. Explore it, yeah. And just going back a little bit, sorry, um, when you're talking about design being integral to your books, I mean, New, new Direction books are works of art. They're things of beauty. Um, Andy Warhol, pre-Studio 54, was do, you know, designing covers for you guys. Mm -hmm. you know? So this has very much been part of your identity. Um, and I think that ties in very much with what Dan was saying. 
an ebook does not need to not also have that. You know, for those of us who might be a little bit snobbish and want the real thing in our hands, um, design is a huge, there are so many more possible, you know, <laughs> iterations now with technology. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, when we, when the, there was the conversation even like 10, 12 years ago was that the, the print book was going to just disappear, <laughs> you know, with the, and, and, and that hasn't happened at all. I mean, there was that initial kind of scare, but um, I think, you know, that again, giving people the option to have an ebook and have a library when they're traveling, I think that's amazing and, and to, to be able to have that. But in the end, I mean, what, what technology always, you know, the thing about technology it's, is, is what they're trying to innovate for is, is always about um, convenience and speed and um, access and things like that. And, and a lot of those things aren't, aren't necessarily what makes um, a good book of literature a good book of literature. And so we've always seen like the, the thing that technology or an app or is always running up against is content. And so we're always, it always comes down to the quality of the content for us. And so that's, that's where as publishers or editors and, and things, you're responsible for, for thinking and, and, and knowing about the content and having a vision for what you want, whether it's a magazine or a publisher. I think that's very important to, to have and to know what you want to do, you know. And so both of you who also edit um, magazines, how does that feed uh, the cycle? Do, is it that talent approaches you, you have a look at their writing and then perhaps work with them down the line or you find out, I mean, how, does, it, does, does one feed the other? So we, we started with the magazine and then the publishing came later, but uh, now the publishing has become much bigger than the magazine itself, but we sort of feel that magazine is still our flagship that is what really gets out there uh, to the readers, to, you know, into the villages, into the small towns. Uh, it's available online across the world. And that, that, that's the first connection most probably with the readers and young writers to Kalachwood. And uh, so I think that really plays a very important role in getting uh, new manuscripts, young writers uh, into our list. And also in getting the word of new books out there. Uh, so people are just have to follow our magazine, then we have a few pages reserved every issue to keep telling them what new books are coming out and all that. So that's, it works both ways. Um, so we handed off the magazine a couple of years ago, but while we were editing the magazine for the 10 years we did it, I think we counted at some point like 80, how many books came, uh, many, 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 many books started off in the magazine and were published by, ended up becoming books that were published by other publishers and that was something that we were really proud of and I think we saw the magazine as a way, as a way for that to happen for the people who were in it. But then I think just personally, maybe like running a magazine was something I could do then but now I can't, there's such a pleasure in editing a whole book that's just, um, I think, there was so much excitement in discovery at that time, and now there's so much pleasure seeing a project from beginning to end in that way. Absolutely. Um, I think the other avenue that we haven't discussed yet and is most definitely on the rise, it's the highest growing segment of publishing is audiobooks. Um, 
there's Audible, which is part of the behemoth that's Amazon. Um, there's a smaller player that listed a few years ago called Storytel, which has presence mainly in Northern Europe, but it's now in India as well. Um, performance poetry is a thing. It's a big thing. It's, it's amazing. It opens a new dimension to the audience of, of the work. Uh, when I was listening to your work, I was telling you earlier, your poetry readings of some of your poems from Aquarium. Uh, just hearing you, you know, and, and the cadence and the rhythm and the pronunciation just brought it to life in a way that I couldn't uh, do justice to myself. Um, so is this something that you are thinking of maybe down the line? Or, or is it, you know, just, just there are other issues to be, to be tackled first? Uh, perhaps, Jeffrey, you could start. Yeah, um, so we do uh, work with an outside um, company for audiobooks for some of our fiction. Um, I don't know the exact percentage of, of the numbers for that, but I mean, it's not um, huge, but we do we do, do that. Um, um, I mean, for poetry, I mean, a lot of our poetry list is really, I agree, like hearing a poem is, is um, Wonderful, and, and so it could change how you look at uh, a poem on the page. But a lot, we we really, I mean, what the poem on the page is is kind of in the quiet of sitting there with 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 the poem is kind of what um, our books are about, um, or that's kind of what define or what one thing that defines the poetry is what, what what's going on on the page. Like that's very important. Um, that said, there are books where we have included a CD, you know, of readings when it's like, well, but we, we've done that with like Dylan Thomas, um, we did that with George Oppen, we've done it sometimes, we've, we sometimes have put um, clips online, you know, on a website or things like that, um, but it hasn't been a consistent thing all the time of doing it, but but again, I mean, right now, with the way, uh, you know, bef there was a time when the poetry reading, like even in the 60s in the US, was, there, there was no poetry readings, you know, it, or in the 50s, you know, and then, and then it really became something. And now, poetry readings are actually very common. And so if you want to hear a poet's work, you could often find some of it, like, like you did, like online in some other format, and, um, and whether it's a magazine doing some audio or a venue or, you know, so, so there is that way, but we haven't, like, um, done anything consistent with... And what dictates which work is chosen, uh, you know, for the, for the CD projects, for example, that you were just talking about? Oh, What's like the editorial... Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why that and not another? Oh, right, yeah, so that's, that's kind of... Um, um, oh, we, we, there's a number of editors, uh, three or four, um, sometimes even five people in our office who all kind of, like, look at um, the work and we, and we kind of, and we meet and discuss it. And so, again, what, what really, um, it's a sense of what we've published before and in the past and, and what is, is what defines what we're going to continue to do. And so there's, you know, there's some wonderful books that we've read, um, but it just doesn't really fit the press, and so that much is fine, because then they go on and find somewhere else. And at the time when New Direction started, it was actually s similar to what um, Kanan uh, was saying, because it started out as an anthology magazine of um, writers, and then those authors turned into books, like you know, they uh, other books, and so um, and and and. Uh, 
Yeah, so it's kind of like what we've been publishing kind of defines what, what we continue to do, yeah. Um, when, so our first book was written by Lupe Gomez, who is a Galician writer. Um, it's a language of Spain with about a million speakers and translated by the Canadian experimental poet, Aaron Moray. And Aaron said that when Lupe Gomez got the book, she took it and read the, new, read the translations to the cows in the fields. And I was like, oh, too bad there was not a recording device there. That would have been nice. <laughs> Those lucky cows um, who probably don't understand English or Galician. Um, but I think right now there's, I mean, and for a while, there's this, there's so many websites that are doing interesting things with recordings of poetry, which Lyric Line and Pen Sound, where you can go and sort of listen to one poem or two poems by different, or sometimes whole readings by different authors. And I mean, I know I personally, like there's something extremely thrilling in hearing recordings of long dead poets, and I, I love to do that. Um, so, but I think that like I'm always thinking about how, like how we can do this in a bilingual way that that um, that is appealing to listeners. And we're, I think, recording events is one thing, and then thinking of how there's so much to be done. I think in audiobooks with poetry because it is in some way a performance, but some poets it's really not. You know, some poets it lives on the page, and it's. I, I think that. I mean, I'm still thinking about all of these things. I love poetry events, but then, like, I know, at least in Germany where I live now, like, nobody buys books after a poetry event. Like, that sort of replaces the experience. So I'm wondering, more than even, like, reading poems online, it totally, but then that's it, you've done it. So I'm wondering, I'm wondering about those relationships, too. I guess I don't have an answer. Um, and Kanan, so in India, obviously, traveling takes up large portions of most, not your day, but most workers' days. Um, I get on an LRT in KL, it takes me 25 minutes door to door, that's one podcast, so I'm very plugged in you know, to audio. Um, how do you think the Indian experience is? Is it very much that, that we experience in KL and in Northern Europe and, and in America, or is it very different? Audiobooks. Okay, so, um so audiobooks is, you know, it's a part of uh, technology that is changing publishing. So let me briefly talk about how I see technology negotiates uh, publishing itself, and then I'll come to audiobooks. So, you know, for over 15 years uh, in India, we have been hearing that in publishers' conferences that young kids would come and tell me, and much more senior publishers like me, that your days are done. You're finished. Uh, within a few years, there will be no more books, there will be no more publishers. Uh, we are gatekeepers that we don't need, and online is the democratic space, and, and print books will be out of circulation, I mean, like, uh, in four or five years. And I have seen that senior publishers got really scared, looking very worried, people who are, you know, who are really made landmark changes. And for reason, um, that I will tell you, but I was completely unmoved by that, uh, by those experiences. And I have nothing against technology. I understand why it, you know, books need to change in the, into different forms. But I was very, very sure that technology will not determine 
how it enters uh, Tamil publishing. Tamil culture would negotiate that. I'm not just talking about Tamil culture here itself. If it's Malaysia, if it's China, I think it is a local culture would also negotiate with technology on how technology is observed. It's not, it does not happen the same way in every country, in every language. For example, in Tamil, the traditional form of uh, writing in Tamil as a classical language is to use the iron nail and write on dried palm leaves. And that was a traditional method of writing. And after print came a few centuries ago, it took nearly 200 years for print to get rid of palm leaf writing. I mean, you can see how, 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 what a revolution this is and how uh, traditional that is. But it took so much time because for a long period, palm leaf was considered the higher form of writing. And print was cheap. Not, uh, not fit to enter into religious institutions for so many such reasons. So it's not easy. It's not, it's not going to happen like that. And so I, I waited. I, and, and at three, four back, years back, and I thought, you know, this is a time for me to get into e-books and all that. And because I could see that need of why it was required. In urban spaces, you can't afford a room to store your books. In traveling, you can't uh, carry books like you used to anymore. And several older people thought uh, they are better with the um, Kindle because they can increase the font size and read the way they like. <laughs> and for so many reasons. So then I was very happy to you know, start working with the e-books and all that. So that's how I think technology works. For example, why I'm saying this? Because when it comes to audio books, now how, how are audio books uh, sold in the West is that you can listen to them as you travel uh, to your work or as you drive to your work. Both those things are impossible in India. So some free advice for Malaysians, when you cross roads, if you do this, the cars won't stop in India. So. They won't stop here either. <laughs> I'm warning you now. Because it's very nice here, just do that and they stop and you cross the road. So uh, seriously, it's not a joke, but uh, driving to work in a city in India can be like as intensive as playing a serious video game. And there is no way you can take your mind one second off the road. So that's not going to work. And let's say traveling to work in Mumbai. I mean, that is a skill that you have to develop to your DNA, you know. It's amazing that I can't do that. I mean, I will die if I do that. But only if you are really skilled, like almost like a, you know, like a warrior that you take a train to work in Mumbai and don't even think of listening to music or, <laughs> or most of even listening to an audio book. But we have, we have sold a few rights to audio books. I'm waiting to see how that's going to work. Where, where are the people going to listen to that? Definitely not in uh, metros and <laughs> or in uh, driving in a car, but maybe in the privacy of their homes or whatever reason. So we have to wait and see how our culture and our situation negotiates audio books. Or it could be outside the country as well. Definitely, that's a possibility, yes, that's a possibility. Tamils, of course, uh, live beyond, uh, much beyond India, though the major market, uh, let's say about 85, 90% still is within India. Within 85% is within India, so. And the rest, how, how is that divided? So yes, uh, a large part of it, and the next biggest market would be Sri Lanka, and then small market, very small markets in Singapore and Malaysia, then pretty large markets uh, in Paris, London, and Toronto. I think Toronto 
now has more tamils than jaffna sri lankan tamils about 200000 there yeah. and there are bookshops in paris tamil bookshops in paris two three bookshops in la chapelle and in scarborough um, and other parts of london also there are we have booksellers small booksellers mm -hmm. trying to sell books yeah sorry i'd like to open up the floor to uh, the audience do you have any questions just put your hand up yeah Hi. Um, well, thank you for the panel. It was very informative and insightful. Um, so I have a question for each of you um, because I'm, I myself am based in Saigon, Vietnam, and also running my own independent press. So it's been been dying to ask these questions for the past three days. Um, so the first question is addressed to Jeffrey. So you mentioned the fact that um, with uh, New Directions Publishing, you started out with these modernist texts in like American modernist texts, and you kind of gradually trans transit transit into more contemporary ones. And then at first you said like the sale of modernist texts kind of support the contemporary, but now it's like vice versa. So I'm just kind of wondering about that relationship because I've been thinking about that as well, like these modernist texts written by Vietnamese writers who have never been translated or have been badly translated in my personal perspective. So how do you kind of navigate that relationship from the perspective of a publishing, um, of a publisher saying like to, to decide how much effort to put into bodiness text and how much effort to put into temporary, like how do you balance that? Yeah. Um, the second question is for um, Jennifer. So you mentioned that um, a lot of the translators in your press are also poets themselves. So. I myself, I'm also looking for translators based in Vietnam or based elsewhere who know, who has the skill to use both languages, bilingual translators, but also have the skills in prose writing as well. So do you think that is a new direction? Like writers also have bec to become translators as well to support this kind of ecology of independent press and also the new directions of, write, of literature that we're going into um, or like, on like, the relationship between writers and translators as well, since you're also a poet and a translator. Um, and finally, the questions for, um, I'm sorry, I didn't get your name, Kanan? I'm sorry. Kanan. Kanan, okay, so it's not that too far off. <laughs> um, so one of the challenges that I face when I start talking to people about Vietnamese literature, I open my mouth and people are like, oh, war. Oh, immigrations, oh, refugees, oh, boat people, oh, food. And I'm like, yes, all of those, but we are also more. So I'm just wondering when you, because I read in the, your bio that you also said that um, you translate Tamil, your press translate Tamil literature into world languages. So you must have like, you must have thought about audiences outside of the Tamil speaking community. So what I'm like, as a press, you're also quite a senior press, so you must have gone through this process of like thinking about, oh, how do I address these expectations or stereotypes of, let's say, Tamil literature or Indian literature, because people do, people outside of the community and the region, and even people inside also have these expectations of what that type of literature, that label of literature entails. So like, how do you, how have you been navigating that 
as a press, as working with writers, working with translators, and working with other distributors of, um, of Tamil literature. So I'm going first. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll answer his question, and you can. <laughs> no, no, those are good. Those are all good questions. But um, so one thing that for your first question about uh, uh, um, when I when I well a, a few things. James Lachlan was the founder of New Directions, and he had um, um, a number of things going for him. One was the help of his family steal money <laughs> you know, to start the press, which was controlled by an aunt. And it's not like he had like you know everything. He did not. That's not how it happened. But. But also the climate of, of um, publishing, it was much different. It, it was kind of like nobody was doing this at the time. Now, it's, 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 there's so many more options um, to, to be doing this kind of literature as in the US. Um, but also, like when I said uh, modernist um, literature, um, for him starting out in the 30s, the modernist literature was the contemporary literature. Yeah, so that's what he, he and so what he really had was, you know, he was his Harvard uh, uh, undergraduate student, and so he just really connected with um, what was going on at that time uh, in, in, in modernist, what we call, later called, you know, modernist literature. And so he, he met Ezra Pound, and he really wanted to publish Ezra Pound, and he was, and from there that led to, you know, a lot of French poets, um, Latin American, poets and then uh, and, and it kind of just all fed into this project and it was it was not easy in the beginning I mean you look at the letters you look at the records he was he was driving around in his car around the US and selling books out of his um, his the trunk of his car you know and um, and so that was kind of um, how he started and and there was many times when when he thought he would just quit quit really I mean I think Anybody who starts a press must have, have those must have those feelings. Yeah, I think we put the you know. if we put we put the press in depressed sometimes. I think. Yeah, right, yeah. But but so now when, when it, so so for us now, um, you know, he has, I mean, a lot of the audience that it's, is being built for this literature, you know, is kind of um, there, like in, in a way to a certain degree. You know, he, he, his line that he used to give people was that it takes 20 years for a good book to reach an audience. And, and so what are you going to do within that 20 years? Well, you kind of have to, like, have a backlist to support it. And, you know, so, but that was kind of his idea. Like, it takes time for these books to reach, you know. And so that's kind of how we continued. And luckily, sometimes it's, it's you know, we've had a, a lot of success with, with writers like Roberto Bolaño, um, Zabald, um, and then there's New York Review Books that does like this whole series of classics that is um, literature of, of, from of Russia, you know, of authors that are dead but in new translations. And they've really, you know, have done well with that, with that list, you know. So anyways. Okay. Um, so for over 100 years, poets in the U.S. have been translating poets from abroad to to find new ways to talk and write and enrich English and, um, and not just in English. The first poet who I translated was a Yiddish writer. She wrote in New York and she was from Belarus or white Russia at the time. Um, she wrote in New York in the teens and the 20s and was part of this Yiddish, all-male Yiddish writing circle. 
and they were publishing in Yiddish translations the same um, poets, poems that Pound was translating from Chinese. And so in the, I mean, we, you, American poets have been looking for, different, for new ways to, to think and write for so long. And I mean, I think that there is this, there was for a long time this sense that academics were doing a lot of the translating, but those, I mean, no offense to any of the academics in the audience, but, but um, poets translate for readers of poetry and What's, I think I've, I keep coming back to this idea of that English is the hard part, but it's not just English that's the hard part. It's like knowing what a poem sounds like to readers in English of poetry and what a poem is in English in the US and not sort of co-opting the translation to fit it into an American poet poem, but also not having it read as if it's not what it is. So I think those are things that poets are always tuning their ear towards. So that's, those are the translations that I'm always interested in. I think also from a marketing perspective, if we're gonna talk th about that, like I think that people are gonna, I mean, this is very low scale marketing, but people are gonna buy this book in the US because Erin Murray is a known name to other American and Canadian experimental poets. So, the same thing like um, when well-known American poets are translating, that helps sell the book. So um, we publish uh, only in Tamil. We don't publish in any other language. But we sell rights and we buy rights from world languages. But your question is still very relevant because um, so interestingly we are translated one book from Galician and sold one rights to Galician. We have bought, so, uh, translated one book from Galician into Tamil and sold rights for one Tamil novel into Galician. <laughs> yeah. so, so that is, that is uh, very interesting because uh, I, I have done this mainly in Frankfurt, uh, my buying and selling rights. And the first time I went to Frankfurt on a program in 2007, I had a fairly big catalog of about 50 writers. And since then, my catalog is getting smaller every year as I tune my ears to what might work internationally. First thing I have learned is that what in your own language, in your own culture, in your own country, a writer or book is considered very important is not necessarily what might sell uh, you might sell rights for, and that's not necessarily what the world might be interested in, or the other countries might be interested in. So you have to generally understand that, and also tune your pitching to independent individual publishers, and even to individual editors. So as you make your connections, and you understand what the others are publishing, then you're increasingly able to do this more and more. And sometimes, you know, it is always better to work through agents. I'm very, very open to all that. I'm very happy to work with them at any point, any time, any country, because personal connections, mutual trust, all that is very important. So I don't let go of any opportunity to work with others in trying to be able to sell rights. 
because the kind of knowledge um, agent might have about countries and languages and presses is not something that a publisher from India can easily acquire. So you do all that and then it is a, I think it's a never ending process of learning. And also that, you know, um, how much ever I want, I don't think I will be able to sell a book of ideas to America or Europe. And it is, it is, there is, there are these things that one may not like, but there are these unsaid rules that I think uh, the world, I feel the world is always telling me, give me your stories and your experiences and take our ideas from us. We don't need your ideas. So it's not going to be easy, but that does not mean that it will never happen. Once you, once you are able to promote a particular writer, a particular language, work, you know, to a certain level, probably then you can begin talking about, can you work with a non-fiction book? But these are certain inequalities there that you have to understand and you have to negotiate it as it works. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for those questions. Any other questions for the panel? Um, so coming back to making those connections and you know figuring out stuff, if you hadn't gone to Frankfurt, you wouldn't have, you know, or you, not as early as that, um, about rights. Um, literary festivals in the circuit, um, I would imagine you spend quite a bit of time, a chunk of time. I, I'm not sure how your connection to Pauline started. Was it through meeting? Oh, there you go. <laughs> so um, how much of your time, how do you choose where you go, and what makes it a really worthwhile trip when you get home and you think, yeah, that was great, or that was unexpected and amazing, and I'm going to look for this kind of connection next time, or network building? Um, yeah, no, that's, it's great to be at a festival like here and learn so much about what's going on um, in, in Malaysia and in, um, you know, in India and, and things. And, and we're always kind of bringing back ideas because we do so much translation. Um, as far as what we choose to go to and things, I mean, there's a, a few um, um, book expos and... and um, um, gatherings, uh, academic gatherings in the U.S. that we have gone to for years, and we always go there. We have a book booth um, overseas because, again, we're fortunate that we've been around so long. We've established these relationships with um, agents in other countries and, and abroad. So, so oftentimes they'll invite one of us or someone from the press to go. Um, you know, I was just in Korea uh, looking at the uh, last. Fall to at, at the publishing there, and we and um, and so we're always kind of uh, able but able to, to do those things on invitation. I mean, we can't afford to really you know go to to actually Frankfurt every year, you know, and and what we go often when we get support, you know, because you're not going to get it from the U.S. government for for that kind of like literature, you know. Um, but um, yeah, so. So yes, um, I, I propose to travel as less as possible and stay at home in my office because that is really required. But I, I end up do traveling a lot. For example, you know, also it's a choice that you make. Usually when I come back from Frankfurt in October and then we have our Chennai book fair in January and it is in this time we publish about 50, 60 books, I try not to travel at all. And I just want to stay back and take care of all that. 
but when this invitation came for example i thought this is an this is an opportunity for me to be able to interact develop contacts with you know this part of the world um, uh, though we are very close and i don't think i have sold any works to malaysia or to malay language or uh, indonesia or you know this part of the world so i thought this would be opportunity for me to come and try to understand how all this works it will be very nice to develop contacts with neighboring asian countries and so i decided to have come decided to come here but we do get lot of invitations but we we go by what we can do as much as possible i am very careful that i don't want to become a public intellectual i am a publisher first so that is my first job and uh, so everything else comes after that you turn me off okay um when we do the journal stefania and i had the, this policy that we would say yes to everything because we were young and had energy um now I, there are things that i regret saying yes to for sure cuz books are really heavy i just want to say that like when we're talking about digital editions and audiobooks like i think that the we spend so much time online that something that draws me to books and i think draws people to books is the physicality that we're in our bodies and we're holding something and they feel like dan does i think these books feel so good and they feel good to hold and there's like the physicality of it but from the publisher's perspective they're also like heavy and you need our muscles to carry them from place to place that's all i'm going to say about traveling but no, um i think that for me it's interesting like the book fairs that i've done and the conferences to see who's buying books it's like the best in person way to see you know not not necessarily meeting translators because i feel like that happens through life like through going to other people's events and other people's conferences but to see in different countries like who is buying books in translation and who is buying poetry books and that is fascinating i think so that's in the us it's still even though i felt like this would have changed it still feels like translators are buying books in translation that's who are the people who are drawn to it okay uh, any last questions from the floor yes uh hello uh, i'm from singapore and uh, as you know like technology has been increasing uh, getting more advanced as time passes and there's been you know recently developments in regards to translation in regards to automation and um like like what you guys have said previously like uh like maybe fiction or literature it's quite hard to translate use automated translation or like use a computer because diff like there's this human touch that uh computers can but maybe in other forms of text that's maybe less mm, less subjective maybe will there one day come a time where translation will be mostly be done through computers or ai yes i think i think about this all the time but i think like that when you're doing a translation you could you're just making choices every time that it could right now that are based on aesthetics and i mean i i'm very curious to see the like how 
computer trans or computer tra or algorithmic translation and um, compu and like the art of translation might work together and how you could see the like making I think what would be interesting for me technology wise is making manifest how these choices happen and I love like right now there's there's a couple of amazing essays where a translator like William Weaver has a essay about this where he goes through and he's like then I chose this word because of this and I chose this word because of this and making these things I think that's where I'm interested in seeing the technology go. It's like showing how translation happens and what the choices are. And I mean, I think there's so many amazing essays, right? So much being written now about translation that makes us think in new ways about language and how language works. That is why, why I love reading translation because it's at the center of all these questions. Like, what is it? Can a computer do it? And I think reading literature is the best way to think about those things. So I think it's a great question. So my, my feeling is that uh, technology will be able to translate when technology can write poems as well. <laughs> Probably not till then. Yeah. Thank you. Um, any other questions? No? Okay, so to, to, to all three of you then, what's next? What are you working on now? What are you, what are you looking out for? What would you, you know, what's in the pipeline? Jeffrey. Um, I, could, uh, I could say what just has been coming out actually for, um, for New Directions. I just, we've been publishing these poetry pamphlets um, so if you really don't want to sell anything, <laughs> no, that's not. So it's it's it st actually started out again as um, a project that that the founder had done back in the '40s of publishing just smaller kind of chapbooks of of of, of a particular poet or poetry, and um, so we started it again uh, with in a different a little different format, um, and so the next four uh, poetry pamphlets have, are just coming out this month. Um, and then, yeah, I've been, I've been working, uh, uh, editing a, uh, a novel uh, uh, by um, Gaffey, that's a Chinese writer for New York Review of Books. And um, so, oh, time, time's up. Almost up, we're Malaysian, it's okay, we bend time. <laughs> yeah, so what next is, uh, so my, my famous writer, Parimal Murugan is here, and we have been traveling since 2015. I think we are thoroughly bored of each other. So I am trying to find ways to dump him, probably find the next writer and not be known as Parimal Murugan's publisher anymore. Maybe somebody else's publisher or just a publisher who publishes many languages, many writers. <laughs> that would be interesting. <laughs> I'm just going to tease it because the contract hasn't been co-signed, but it's Cuban and our website is circumferencebooks.com. So in a week or so, you can go find out who the poet is. Brilliant. Wishing you all, all three of you, all the best. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you to our audience. Thank you.